So welcome to 11's Is with Danielle Perry, the podcast where I ask each of my guests the same 11 questions over a brew. My guest today is a Grammy, Emmy and Ivor Novello award-winning English film composer. His reputation is huge and broad. His work shows style, wit, versatility and an unabashed love of both the lush, ridiculous, romantic, energetic and thrilling. He is one of Britain's film industry's most talented and respected players, switching seamlessly from the orchestral grandeur on films like Stargate and Independence Day, for which he received a Grammy Award, to more scaled-down urban soundscapes for films like Shaft and Too Fast, Too Furious, to name a few. As well as that, he is also the man who's successfully taken over from John Barry as the composer for the world-famous James Bond movies, having written the music for Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day. Um, away from the film world, he maintains a career as a successful record producer and songwriter um, as well, having worked with a wide range of contemporary artists including Pulp, Chrissy Hind, Iggy Pop, Garbage, Massive Attack and Damien Rice. I also gather from his posts online he also loves chocolate. Please welcome my guest to Elevenses, David Arnold, how are you doing? Uh, it's chocolate biscuits. Actually, it's not even chocolate. I don't actually like chocolate that much. It's one of those odd things that I'm one of those people that um, I, I, I don't really like chocolate flavoured things. It's always like the last thing that I would go for. So if it was like a chocolate cake or a chocolate custard or a chocolate pudding, it's like right at the bottom of the list. I'm a big biscuit fan and I'm a big cake fan, but I'm really not bothered about chocolate. I'm one of those. <laughs> I love the fact that out of that whole introduction, I love the fact that you're like, no, the chocolate bit's wrong. <laughs> that's the bit that's wrong. Um, but welcome to Elevenses. Do you have a brew with you? Because the whole point of this is just to stop put the, the smartphones down and actually just sort of speak to each other and, and get to know someone over a coffee. Are you, are you a coffee man or a tea man? In the true spirit of the thing, I actually have. Uh, I've put it in a little flask because um, I'm sort of building a new writing room uh, in a, basically in a shed. It's a posh shed. Um, but there isn't any other facility in the shed. So I made myself a little cup of coffee. So we're going to wind it right back uh, to the beginning now. Um, to your first memory, wondering what that was, because was it Luton that you grew up in? It was sunny Luton. I was born in my mum and dad's house in the bedroom. My brother and sister are all born in the same bedroom. Uh, my mum was attended uh, by a midwife. I don't think there was a doctor involved. Uh, and we were all born at home. Um, and my first, my first distinct memory is, um, running away from some huge rats that were in our garden. Uh, um, there was an infestation of massive rats, uh, in the long grass at the bottom of our garden. And, uh, I remember I was about, I think I was about 14 months and walking. Uh, and I remember, running back into the house and then my dad coming out with a garden spade and uh, the lid of a dustbin as a shield as a kind of knight in shining armor to fight the hordes of rats off but I think the council came in the end and got rid of them but they literally were as big as cats but they're in the good old days, you know, when rats were huge. <laughs> but that, that's a really early memory. Do you say, did you say about 18 months, 14, 18 months? I've got a lot of very early memories of, of um, and I remember being in my cot with my, in the same room as my sister. Everything was quite vivid and I remember being very much there and it going in, you know, and me thinking like, this is actually happening and I'm actually here and I'm actually seeing that. One of the best things that we did, my dad took me to... St Albans, uh, I think it was St Albans, there was a car showroom 
who who were opening. I don't know if it was a Ford car showroom or a Vauxhall car showroom. Uh, and they booked Tom Jones to open it and Batman. And so we went there and it was the original, like the Batmobile from the Adam West 1960s, you know, that amazing car with Batman in it, driving Tom Jones around St. Albans. It was, these things are brilliant. I wish they'd do that again. <sighs> That's amazing. And then, of course, school followed. And then, you know, sort of, it seems from what I've read that um, while you were at sixth form in Luton, you um, made friends with a gent called Danny Cannon, who was a director. And, and that was kind of the start of everything for you, wasn't it? I mean, that, that friendship opened so many doors and you seem to have met someone where you had a, a huge kind of creative connection with at quite an early age. Yeah, it was quite odd because, I mean, it was just, it was actually after, um, it was after six months, about a year after, I think. And in Luton, there was a little place called 33 Guildford Street, which I think used to be a hat factory. And some entrepreneurial creative types had sort of taken it over to make a creative space for people and when I say creative space in Luton it was an old house that had like uh, car tires on the floor with sort of MDF on top and then a bit of carpet for soundproofing Uh, and the bottom half you know the living room bit was declared the theatre the next room up on the next floor was the rehearsal space and right on the top um, they had a little video editing suite with VHS, you know, a couple of VHS mixers. Um, and I used to practice and play in the rehearsal space downstairs. I think I was 19 at the time, 1920. Um, and Danny was making little films upstairs and he was only 16. And we used to meet on the stairs and talk about films and music. And he loved music and films and I love music and films. And Danny used to say, I want to be a film director. And I said, well, I want to be a film composer. So I said, well, let's just do stuff together. Uh, and to cut a long story short, pretty much the next eight years was doing that. You know, we we started off with a little VHS handheld um, uh, camera and Danny used to get all of his friends together and he used to write scripts and we used to go out shooting stuff at, you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning in parts of Luton where it was all, um, you know, there'd be no one there. So it would look, uh, it would look completely, which it was completely empty. Um, and we would buy smoke pellets from the, from the market, from Luton market. So if we were shooting something inside, we'd let off a smoke pellet and then put a little lamp outside the window. So it would come in. So it all looked like Ridley Scott. We tried to make it as cinematic as possible. Uh, and, and Danny eventually, one of the films uh, that we did got entered into the BBC Young Filmmaker of the Year competition in the 80s. Um, this is when they did such a thing. And I remember as Mike Smith was the presenter. Uh, anyway, the film that, that, that was entered that we did won the overall competition. And one of the judges was Alan Parker, the film director who did The Wall and, and uh, Bugsy Malone and... Um, Midnight Express, you know, and he's a huge music fan. Uh, and he suggested that Danny went to the National Film and Television School um, uh, as a directing student. And he got in uh, and he was the youngest person to get in. I think he was 19 or 20 to get in. Uh, and he spent the next four years, three years making films at the National Film and Television School. I applied and didn't get in, uh, but I carried on doing work for Danny. And then I met other people producers and writers and directors there and so then there was like a four-year period of learning the job by doing it with all these different people Uh, and eventually uh, when Danny graduated uh, he got the uh, money together to make a a first feature which was called The Young Americans and he convinced the producers to, to let me do it and they said yes and 
and we did it and that was the start of something else completely because not only was the film score was was very well received luckily for me uh but the the song that i wrote for the end titles with Björk um called play dead was a big hit for her and seemed to open up a lot of doors in that area so all of a sudden i'm gone from no one knows who you are and no one wants to talk to you or or, or return a call to oh yeah we know this you know and we like this and so all of a sudden it's like the record side of it started opening up and the film started opening up and and that yeah it literally was I give talks sometimes to students uh, at um, music colleges or just at universities anyway in general. Uh, and sometimes they look for, you know, they ask if you've got a sort of an inspirational thing that you could impart. And, and, and I always r- recall that moment that, you know, sometimes people think about their big break. You know, they say, what was your big break? And, you know, you could extrapolate that to, you know, someone seeing uh, the young Americans in Hollywood and deciding I'd be good for Stargate or someone hearing uh, the, rec- you know, the record I'd made with the Bond themes and deciding I'd be good for, for Bond. But I mean, really, the, the, the big break was, was meeting Danny because if I hadn't met him, none of these other things would have happened. So I always sort of tell people to be, to be aware of like who you're around and who you're talking to and uh, because, you know, the, the, your big break might be the person who's sitting next to you and you're sharing a bag of chips with, you know, watching a film or something. Who is your best friend? That would be my second question for the podcast. I, th- I think I've had friends that I would say were best friends, but but everything seems to move quite a lot. I don't think there's anyone person in particular that I would say in the best friend category you know if we're excusing our other halves uh which would which probably would win you know uh well would um you know if we're talking about people who aren't our other halves um who your best friend is I've I've always had lots of really fascinating amazing interesting friends and I'm not sure that any of them would fall in the category of best friend because it would it's sort of insin it, it implies that it's someone who's been with you for a long time uh, and I had best friends at school but then when I went to sixth form they didn't go so you sort of lose touch with them and then I had best friends at sixth form and college and then I had best friends when I was doing lots of really weird odd jobs and doing student films but then when I moved on from that you know, they went somewhere else and I went somewhere else. So it's always been, you know, I've always had uh, like really interesting, fun relationships with with people that I, you know, that I find fascinating and interesting and, and kind and funny. Um, but I'm not sure that there is an actual person that you could point to and say like, that's, you know, that's the one, he's the one that's going to do the eulogy, you know, when they uh, lower me down. You know, I'm lucky to know such a lot of nice people. It's lovely. But also, you know, I, I also like being by myself a lot. You know, isolation is part of the job, but, you know, I like uh, I like a bit of man cave time where you can have a think about what you're going to do before you do it. Yeah, absolutely. I was, yeah, I was thinking it must be quite a sort of, it's quite similar to sitting in the radio studio a lot of the time when you spend a lot of time on your own. But no, it's interesting to, in answer to that question, like some of the guests have gone straight in for like one, one dude, you know, like Dave or, or again, like you, just like it's an impossible question to answer. So, Well, maybe it's because I never felt the need to, you know, and it's like I had a brother and a sister and we lived in quite a small house. And um, I mean, my dad worked in a factory. My mum was at home. 
Um, uh, and so you always felt quite secure in that regard, you know, that um, there wasn't any need for anything else or anyone else. You know, it felt very solid and safe uh, and maybe that was the reason why. No need for an extra imaginary or, in fact, real person to shore anything up um which leads me quite nicely on to question three actually so you know you're saying that you felt so secure where you were where you're growing up and uh, the sort of terrifying image you painted earlier of massive rats running towards you i was wondering if there was anything you were scared of doesn't have to be back in your childhood but maybe throughout life or maybe for the future well in a slightly oblique sense um growing up wanting to do something expressive and creative in an environment where that wasn't really a thing. I mean, we had it wasn't in the house. I mean, in the house there was like tons of music and records and the radio was on all the time and we watched films and we'd go to the cinema. You know, really wonderful stuff and exposed to so many different sorts of things. But, you know, with my dad just being a person who worked in a factory and my mum just staying at home, there wasn't really a door that anyone knew that would open that said, this is, this is the route to, you know, where you want to go. So what I wanted to do was it was completely alien uh, to everyone the expectation certainly in those days was um you know you'd have an apprenticeship or you'd go and work somewhere so their main concern was always you know is it a job is it actually a job what are you going to do for a job you know how are you going to make any money doing this you know thinking up things and and writing things and you know and I said well I don't know but you know, I'd like to try. Part of the thing about trying is actually supporting yourself while you're doing it. So even though I kind of lived on and off at home, uh, I, I sort of signed on at a temp agency. I did loads and loads of such peculiar jobs um, and all the time writing music or, you know, or, or drawing or or whatever it was I was doing at the time uh, and, and, and trying to make enough money just to keep going so I wouldn't have to do a full-time job because I knew if I did that, then, you know, you'd be too tired to do all the other stuff and all of a sudden you're in the trap of earning money and having to get up and do the job. So I thought, no, I'm just going to be really strict about it. Uh, and I suppose if what I was afraid of uh, was not an actual thing, but the the fact that the road that you felt you wanted to go down was so uh, oblique and blurry that you weren't even sure that there was an end to it, you know, if there was a point. Um, but I just, re I remember making myself a bit of a promise and thinking like, look, if I get to the age of 30 and nothing's happened, then that's probably a good indication that nothing will happen, but I'm going to do everything I can then. So I was, in a way, I lived a bit like a monk, you know, I didn't really go anywhere or do anything. I was writing all the time. Uh, I had a tiny little, you know, sort of home studio set up, which was with tape and a little computer. It was so basic. Um, and, and I did that as much as I could. Uh, I used to borrow bits of equipment. I used to go and record little film scores at the guy called John Rand. He used to play organ at the local Catholic church. Um, famously had an eight-track machine in his house and a couple of synthesizers. And he let me go around there on Tuesday evenings at 6.30 while he was having his tea to record my little film scores. And I have to do one track at a time, another track, another track, another track, mix it all onto a cassette and then be out by 7.30 when, when he came back in after his tea. So, you know, he helped a lot. Um, uh, and lots of people have always helped, but I, was, I suppose I was always slightly worried about, um, you know, how do you get anywhere? You know, if you come from where you come from and, and it doesn't seem to be a thing and we didn't know anything about anything, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you do that? It was, a, it was a great mystery. If I had a known, I might have got to it a little bit quicker. Yeah, yeah. When was the validation from your parents? Was there one moment where they 
because I've seen this often with with people who come from a, a background. A lot of my musician friends um, whose parents just don't, they've never seen the world that they want to be a part of, so it's really hard to kind of comprehend it. And there has been certain moments, whether it's been a, a certain gig or a venue that's full or a piece in a certain magazine that the parents are aware of that they can connect to, where it's sort of like a, a meeting of, of two minds and, and sort of environments collide. When was that with your parents? When did they go, ah, done quite good, son? Well, I think, I mean, probably, you know, I mean, whatever you do, you know, they always said it was good. Um, uh, but when I suppose when it sort of stepped up a bit, you know, when the record came out and it was on the radio and they could hear it on the radio, that's a big deal. You know, I got asked to open up uh, uh, cut a, a, a ribbon on a on a plaque because in Luton, it was the first commercial cinema in the UK. I got asked to do that, Anglia TV came round to their house to talk to them when Stargate came down. You know, so all of a sudden, you know, things were happening that were unusual. Um, but they always, you know, the thing is, they always just asked me the same question, I my mean, dad especially, he just said, you know, like, uh, are you happy and are you working with nice people? That's the only thing he cared about. Oh. Is any, you know, are they, are they nice? Are they being nice to you? And that's the only thing that I do care about. You know, I you know I've done plenty of things for little or nothing because I've liked the people and the project, and I've turned down things which were huge. I mean, like properly huge, because I haven't felt like I've really got on or have liked the people that are doing it. Um, and those are the things that always ring in my ears. You know, and I think it's the best advice you could give to anyone uh, is, you know, make sure that, you know, as, as much as you can to work with nice people, find the nice people. Because you're, if you're getting up every day and you're committing 14, 15, 16 hours of your life, you know, seven days a week for a few months to make a film for someone, uh, and I know it's a, it, it's a team effort, so it's not just you who's doing it, but, you know, I want to be able to get out of bed and thinking like this is a... These are people that I want to be with, you know, and want to work with. And, and I've had a couple where it hasn't been like that and it's been utterly miserable. What's your ambition, David? Ooh. In many ways, I've done so many things that I've wanted to do. Uh, and I suppose to a certain extent, it's like carry on doing it is good. Um, but some of the things that I've never done uh, and this is a bit like if you weren't a musician, what would you be? You know, one of those kinds of things. Um, I've, so I love radio. So I've always fancied doing a sort of phone-in radio thing where you can just argue with people. Not argue, have a discussion with people. Um, I love that format. You know, I like I like finding out about people and about what they know and what they think and why they think it. And I've learned a lot from listening to some of these discussions on the radio as well, you know. So uh, I, I love that sort of thing. Uh, so I, 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 I love cooking. So in a way, I'd like maybe, uh, I'd like to be a, a chef in a restaurant where my only responsibility is to come in and cook one thing once and then go home. You know, <laughs> I, lo I love the idea of it, but obviously not the workload because I know it's incredibly strenuous and difficult. I keep thinking about all these things are sort of all related in a way. If you think like broadcasting, uh, you have you walk into that room and you've got a blank slate. You can talk about whatever you want and presumably you're going to talk about something because you think it's something that is going to engage with people and they're going to learn a bit about you 
they'll understand a bit more about you and a bit more about of, of the world and you're going to learn something about them and it's about pleasing them isn't it it's about like come back do it again tomorrow and with a you know in a restaurant you've got your blank piece of paper i suppose is your menu uh and you've got your ingredients which in music is your notes you know you've got you've got your plate which is your manuscript paper um uh, and what you're trying to do is assemble these things that everyone has got access to in a way such a way that it makes them happy and makes them maybe learn something about you. You can express yourself through those things. Um, what do you think your worst quality is? And I don't mean this to sound negative in any way, but um, I know that I, I dither and I can't decide. I'm a classic Gemini. I'm right down the middle. So I know that I'm a bit indecisive. That would be my one. I think I'm the king of procrastination. And I think looking back on the way I've worked for the last 25, 30 years, it's always been about procrastination. When I was working uh, in America in the in the in the mid nineties onwards, uh, before the internet, uh, before mobile phones, before anything on demand, um, I remember thinking, "I'm going to start working at eight o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to go through till ten o'clock at night, and I'm going to get a lot done." By twelve o'clock. I was still watching sort of daytime American TV, you know, chat shows, you know, Geraldo uh, uh, and all these people that would basically have an audience full of, you know, people screaming at each other, which again, you know, looking at how people work, I thought it was absolutely fascinating and so different to anything that we'd had over here. Um, so I used to give myself a cup of coffee. I said, you know, I'll just watch one of these and then I'll start. I've always said that, you know, when my pencils are lined up, I'm ready to go, you know, it's like, but there's a lot of stuff happens before then, you know, the sheets have to be folded, I have to put that, that curtain needs to be over there, that needs to be put away, maybe I should just get rid of that cobweb over there, you know, I'm a terrible procrastinator. My 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 engineer, um, Jeff Foster, he's amazing, um, he always says that I basically you shouldn't bother doing anything until three weeks before you're supposed to deliver it because you never do anything until then anyway. You still think you're working, you know, but you're not actually working. It's going around in your head, but you're not yeah. actually at the coal face hacking away at it. You know, you're kind it's it's percolating uh, and it's making, you know, it's making all the right um it's it's going through all the right processes, uh, but you don't ever really get, you know, get your fingers dirty until, you know, so if someone said to me, David, I need this by tomorrow. I would get it done by tomorrow. If someone says to me, I need this done in a month's time, it'd take me a month to do it. It's insane. It drives me mad and I wish I wasn't like that, but I am. Um, You know, I'm always looking for something else to do. And the problem is with now with the internet is you've got the world of knowledge at your fingertips and you're thinking, hold on, I'm supposed to be writing this piece of music, but I could be finding out about the golden uh, moles that live in the Sahara Desert, you know, and 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 how their their one toe has formed into like an axe, so they can go through the sand easier, <laughs> and that they that, that they hear grass growing through the sand. I learned all that yesterday. I was supposed to be doing something. I was going to say, did you make that up? Is that no, true? no? That's absolutely that's absolutely true. Trying to think, when, yeah, I just. I'm yeah, really con- gullible, so I have to be careful. I had the history. I, I, yeah, today, I, today, my procrastination has been learning about the history of envelopes. Envelopes. The first envelopes were sort of, you know, Sumerian, um, you know, two thousand years BC. Yeah. And they were clay, right. and you would carve your message onto a clay slab, and fire it, 
before you <laughs> delivered it to someone. But the thing about if you deliver a clay slab with a message on it, sometimes it's an invoice, someone else could just change it and add an extra O. So what they did was they, they put a coating of slip on it, you know, like which is like liquid clay, on the front. So it would it would set on the front and then they would sign it. So it's a bit like a seal. Um, and so if anyone interfered with it, it would break the, 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 the slip cover. So then your postman, who would have to, you know, this thing which weighed a ton, would deliver it to someone and they would gently chip off the slip and reveal the message underneath. And then when it was read, they would destroy the clay. That's very that good. That's the first recorded use of an, <laughs> uh, basically an envelope. You See, would be sometimes my, uh... I think that's better than writing 1M6 version 7, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. like well, Bond would... jumps out of a car. Do you know what? I'm going to find out about envelopes instead. <laughs> if I have uh, ever get onto Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you will be my phone a friend. So procrastination, you would say, would be your worst quality. But if you could go back, though, and give any advice to your younger self, younger David, what would that be as we sit here today? That whatever your idea of you is now, it actually isn't true. Uh, You know, I think when you're younger, you have so many ideas about yourself. uh, And for me, they weren't always, you know, spectacularly positive. Um, and sometimes you think like, well, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's what I am. Maybe that's who I am. And, um, and all the way through your life, when you kind of harbor these thoughts and you continue to carry them with you, sometimes they can sort of manifest themselves as actual things then, you know, which can be a bit of a distraction. So, um, I think maybe, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, knowing your, it's going to sound very sort of philosophical, but, you know, like knowing, knowing yourself is one of the, you know, one of the most useful things that you can, that you can achieve, uh, knowing what's important and what's not important. Uh, uh, and I would say that there's a lot of things that you think are important that actually aren't and, you know, keep questioning everything about yourself and what you're doing and who you're doing it with. Uh, and and don't be afraid because you know the older you is still alive. Um, so if I could go back, I said you know all those things that they said you shouldn't do because it's dangerous. You can do them because look, you've got to this age, uh, and I'm here from the future to say you can run with scissors. You you can run around the kitchen with a pencil and it won't take your eye out. It's fine. I've got both eyes. <laughs> was that was that a sort of moments of? Um lack of self-confidence from the way you were speaking or just belief in in, in the, the huge ambition that you had? Well, I think the thing about ambition is I think a lot of things, I think it comes from a sort of lack of self-confidence and I'm not, you know, I'm not really quite sure why that was because I had a very, you know, secure um, upbringing, you know, felt very happy uh, and loved and cared for and, you know, really n- nothing to complain about at all. I mean, there wasn't much money about and that's that was just the way it was. Um and I still worry about leaving a light on or I still think about waiting till after six o'clock to make a phone call because it's cheaper, you know, not that it is, but it used to be, uh, you know, so things, things that still, are, you know, that I still get anxiety about or anxious about are things that I was made to feel anxious about when I was younger, you know, always have to finish your food, you know, like you can't waste anything. Uh, you, you don't do dangerous things. You always turn the light off. You always shut the door. You always keep the window shut. So um, there's a little bit of you know hoping that you're going to be good enough to maybe to justify everyone's 
uh, ideas about uh, who you are and what you want to do. You know, it's difficult to say, I want to be in the creative industries or be an actor or a musician or anything like that. Uh, and 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 then not deliver it because you know someone's going to look foolish and stupid maybe to a certain extent I suppose like doing this job or writing music anything is that you're constantly moving on to the next one you know and, and hopefully getting better uh, and um, don't look back and don't read the uh, the, uh, the 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 the, uh, the the underside of the internet you know never read the comments. There must have been so many points in your life where maybe you've sat at a premiere or premiere, as they say in America, you know, of, of a Bond film. Where, you know, when you first worked with Bond to that franchise and took over from, I know that you were such a massive fan of John Barry as well. But w- what would you say, looking back, is your greatest achievement? Would that be a career thing or a personal thing? Or what would um, you say? I suppose if we set aside the family stuff, because that's going to trump everything pretty much every time, isn't it? Um, um, uh, but I suppose... Um, it's an odd thing because every time you think you've got somewhere, you get to where you've got and then you think it's still not there. You know, it's it's a thing that makes you go on and do something else. Um, you know, having having a massive movie like Independence Day, which was, you know, like the number one in the world forever uh, and then winning Grammys for it and all this sort of stuff. Um, you think, oh, that would be good. And then you get it and you're like, oh... And then you think, oh, getting Bond, and it's like, no, Bond is amazing, you know. And I did five of those, and you know, some of the, you know, some of my favourite moments ever have been uh, working on those films. Um, and that is pretty special, I have to say. Being a part of that world is very, very uh, special because it's, you know, I've grown up with it. Everyone grew up with it, you know. So if you're born in the sixties, um, you know, Bond films were the things that were on when. The family were together, you know. They're on the they're on the cinema for about twelve weeks, and then they'd be off the cinema, and then they wouldn't be on telly for four years or five years. So, when they were on the telly, it was a proper event, you know, because you didn't get huge films on the telly very often. So yeah, so the you know being part of the Bond thing was amazing. Doing the Olympics was pretty incredible. Um, in fact, one of the moments that I remember from the Olympics more than anything was the day of the actual ceremony. Um, I had to get there by train. Uh, they 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 would never do a car for us or anything, and um, because you were basically employed by LOCOG from the London Olympic Committee, uh, uh, and um, so as far as they were concerned, it was a very egalitarian uh, um, landscape. So. I would be treated the same way that the person who had the rubber hands at the tube stations saying this with this way to the Olympics would be treated. So I would, you know, have to queue up for my security passes for four or five hours in a queue. And I kept saying, you know, this is really not very good use of my time. You know, we're supposed to be going live to a billion and a half people in two weeks time and I'm spending a day in this queue I'm sure Paul McCartney doesn't have to he go no he does he goes no I don't know if he does but anyway I did. Uh, and then actually on the way down on the actual the actual day of the ceremony, um, when you're in the stadium and all the rehearsals are finished and you're ready to go live, um, having the music on a hard drive in a bag over my shoulder uh, and walking to the tube station and getting the train down to Stratford um, uh, and getting off and walking with everyone, you know, the games makers, and seeing the change that had happened over the period of time from when it was announced 
um, where everyone was saying it's going to be a disaster and London will grind to a halt and everything will be terrible and there'll be this happen and there'll be that happen and none of that happened. And then, you know, everyone loved it and then the team started winning gold medals and everyone loved that and by the time we got to the end, it was like we were totally in love with London and with the event, you know, I mean, it was the most extraordinary feeling. So on the days of the closing ceremony going down where, you know, from the initial ones where everyone was a bit like, ooh, what's going to happen, to people going down and feel like you were going to a wedding reception, um, you know, uh, it was just extraordinary, the change and the people smiling and talking to each other. And I remember being on the on the tube on the way down and going, like, people never talk to each other in London on the tube. You know, it's like they never look at each other. But now... You know, the people who were the games makers, the volunteers who did the pointing and the helping and they were all fiercely proud of everything that they were doing and everyone was really happy that they were there and, and, uh, and um, you know, it was infectious and I'm thinking like, oh, these people actually are here, they do exist. You know, you read such a lot about all awful, terrible things but you realise that the bulk of people actually are really nice people uh, and I thought, oh, why can't London be like this all the time? And it was for a little bit and then it went off and now we are where we are now, you know. But I'm thinking, like, well, those people are still there. You know, those people are still there. Those good people are still there. Um, and maybe they're just a bit quiet at the moment, you know. So it will turn around again, I'm sure. But um, I remember the most, the, the most exciting time was listening to Play Dead being on the radio for the first time. It was on Sunday afternoon and Gary Davis played it on Radio 1. And... Um, because radio had always been the thing for me, hearing music, listening to music, and hearing something that you'd sort of written and produced on the radio um, was the most extraordinary feeling. And I think that's still a highlight. I think out of anything, I'd rather have a hit song than a hit anything else. But there's something about being able to join in singing something, you know, communally. Uh, it's such a wonderful thing and if you go to any concert or even you know, like a football match or anything you know or a riot you know people sing you know it's a it's an amazing human thing that happens I'm going to jump to the next question actually which will link so nicely into this which was if there was a piece of art or music that's changed your life and it's going to be hard for you isn't it to decipher one but I think I know from looking at a few things that you've done online Stevie Wonder songs in the key of life I think uh, yeah I think Stevie's record in the fullness of time has probably elevated itself to the single greatest recorded piece of popular music ever I think uh, and even though it felt astonishing at the time, I bought it, and I think it was 75 or 76, around about the same time that punk was happening. Uh, it sort of sat there in a very different world, you know. I mean, in, in Luton, there were punk bands that were happening and the, the energy of it felt, you know, this was music that was written for my generation. Uh, it annoyed, you know, the parents were annoyed because what do these people look like? Is that a boy or a girl? You know, like all these things on top of the pops. You know, it's just bang, 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 and you can't hear the words. And what does he think he looks like? And God help us if there's another war. You know, those sorts of things with, you know, when you're watching people on top of the pops. Um, but we were thinking like, yeah, this is great. You know, it felt like that energy felt really essential and really important. And I still feel that it does. But Songs in the Key of Life kind of sat there in a way... Um, in its own universe. It's the level of, of, of creativity and 
the musicianship and the sound of it and the songwriting. Um, and in a way, it's of a genre that I don't really listen to, I suppose, that much, you know. Uh, but it seems, for me, it just spoke to me as one of the greatest, the greatest record ever made. In amongst, you know, me going to a record shop and buying the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and Queen and ELO all at the same time. You know, uh, and, and, you know, like a John Barry soundtrack or West Side Story or, you know, I just like music, I think. You know, I don't like one particular type of music, but, I, I you know, I feel that I know when something's good that speaks to me and uh, that, that that does in so many different... And I think he was only 26 when he made it. It was just horribly young. Yeah, it's a really brilliant answer for that one. Totally. Um, we're nearly done, actually. Um, I hope you have enough coffee there. Um, when did you most feel like you? I think it's. I think it is fairly recent, uh, and maybe the lockdown things had something to do with it. I'm not sure, but I think it was a few years ago um, when I realised that so many of the things that you think define you are other people's ideas about what you should be doing. Uh, and certainly career-wise, you know, I'm really not interested in other people's ideas about what I should be doing or what would be good for me or not. I mean, one of the first conversations I had with my agent uh, in 1994 was, um, you know, don't tell me what to do uh, <laughs> because, you know, I'd rather fail on my own merits, you know, and make the wrong decisions and learn than come back and blame you for something. So knowing that, you know, those decisions are all mine um, and um, it sort of, it takes you a step back from A, relying on other people, but also, you know, that sense of validation. I mean, the good thing in the arts with creative people is that you sort of put yourself out there quite a lot. You put a lot of yourself into what you do. Uh, and it's quite terrifying when you have to expose it to someone, you know, like a director's going to come around, I've written some music for a film where they might have been working on it for two years, uh, and at that moment they could either like it or not like it, and you want them to like it, obviously, uh, uh, and, um, you know, but once you once you sort of lose that sense of it's everyone else's idea, people say you should do this film because it's going to be good for you, or you should work with that person because it might lead on to something else, um, and I've got an odd sort of morbid way of living my life, which is I sort of wake up every morning, A, happy to be awake because the other options aren't good. So I'm happy to wake up uh, and I try and get, I, I try and think of what I'm doing that day uh, along the along the lines of, if this is my last day on this planet, did I spend it with people that I like doing something that I like, no matter how banal or small or huge or whatever it was? And I try and make that day equal to that expectation. So, you know, hopefully, I mean, hopefully I won't drop down dead tonight. But if I do, I'd be happy that I spent it doing all these things that I'm doing today because I've made the choice to do them. That's the only control I have. The only control I have is how I spend my time. Uh, and I want to try and make the most of it. So, and I know that's simplistic because, you know, some people have no choice and, you know, I've got, a, you know, from a large family and I know that there's a lot of struggling that people have to do and sometimes they don't always have the choice. But someone else said to me, you know, you've got the same amount of hours in the day as Beyonce, you know, she gets a lot done. So <laughs> it's interesting you say that because that's really kind of creating a full circle back to what you said right at the very start of our chat. Um, to do with what your father said to you, which is, are you having fun? And are they being nice? You know, are they kind people? Which is 
you know, are you enjoying your day and are you surrounded by people you love? It's the same kind of mantra, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, that must have gone in a lot deeper than I thought it had. Mm. Um, but it's not a bad thing to have as a as a touchstone, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, because ultimately that's all we've got, isn't it? You know, we've got our 24 hours in a day and what do we do in that day? How do we fill it and who do we fill it with? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you'd like it to be something that you'd, smile about and be happy about and feel happy and all the things that you've asked me about you know ambition what's real ambition ambition is to go to bed at night thinking that was a great day Mm -hmm. you know that was lovely those people were great had a really nice time you know that's an ambition worth having Well, my last question, which I think is always fairly interesting, very interesting actually with my guests, has been to ask if you have any reoccurring dreams. Many performers have anxiety performance dreams. I was wondering if you had any interesting ones. I don't know if they're broadcastable. I have, I have, I have the weirdest dreams, like really, really, really weird. And I remember them. I always make sure I remember them so I wake up and I can tell people what they're about. Um, but there was a, a couple of weeks where I was having the same one every night. And uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was on a, a chocolate um, uh, aircraft carrier in the sea. And I was desperately trying to uh, have a poo. Uh, and every time I was trying, Paul McCartney kept looking over the top of the door. Um and this was like every night. It was like on the next night I was like in the desert trying to do a poo in the desert and Paul McCartney came. I don't know why. I mean, I've never had that thing with Paul McCartney. I've worked with Paul McCartney a few times and he's been lovely, but but uh, that's never been a thing that's happened. But that sort of stopped. And then another one, you know, another one where someone was trying to sell me a, a, a lasagna that was uh, made out of green light uh, and was only available on a beach. Um yeah, they're they're very strange. Sometimes they're very very long, uh, um, but yeah, they're really odd. I've tried to figure out what they are. Well, I sort of looked into dreams, uh, and and um, the sort of research suggests that you know dreams are just your brain figuring out what you've seen that day, you know, and what you've experienced that day. And sometimes it's just things that you glance that you're not even aware that you've seen. And sometimes when I start breaking them down, I go like, oh yeah, no, I, it was yeah. because I saw some, there was something on MasterChef about, you know, about lasagna and then there was something else about a sea something, you know, it's like that. It's just your brain collating all the bits and pieces and sorting it out and filing it away and, and, and putting it away and then it just presents as, itself as a dream. I mean, they're hugely entertaining. Um, but, but since I found that out, I've kind of been able to decipher where, you know, ne- not the meaning of them, but where the material comes from. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, it's like I said, people are fascinating, and I could I could talk to people about their thoughts uh, and what they think and how they think all day. I think it's the greatest thing. I think you've got you know you've got a fantastic job doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I feel very very lucky, and and that's why we're launching this because you you said at the start you're interested why. You know, because often whenever I'm lucky enough to interview people or meet people, it's always because they've got a promotional schedule and there's there's one product that they need to talk about. But it's actually quite nice to actually get to know the person behind the products that we see or we hear or we... Yeah, I haven't got any product. No, no, I don't. I haven't got anything. It's going to be a completely wasted opportunity because like in two years time or something, when I've got a record out, I'm going like, oh, I've already done that. Can't do that again. And you can You can owe me a play on your radio show. No, I promise I will. 
Oh man, what great company. If you think about all that music that's been born from that mind of David Arnold, it's such a wondrous body of work, isn't it? And what a laugh as well. I just want to go and hang out and chew the fat with him, essentially. And now if you enjoyed it, I'd love you to subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode. And if you have time and so inclined, if you could leave a rating for the podcast if you're listening on Apple, I'd be truly, truly grateful. Now, up next in the series, I'm joined by quite the trailblazer, singer of a multi-million selling band, DJ, author and activist, Skin from Skunk and Nancy joins me for a brew. A fascinating insight into how she operates and personal memories shared, like when she first truly felt like herself. The moment I really felt that I was me was when I shaved my head for the first time. I went to the barbers and they um, cut my hair down to a certain point. You know, they were like, no, don't cut it too short. No, don't cut it too short. You have to leave something in mind then. You know, like basically men aren't going to be attracted to me if I don't, if I shave it off. And then I got some clippers of myself and I shaved it all off and looked in the mirror and I was like, there you are, finally. Quite the moment, right? Until next week.